Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So I'll be reading the Bible readings for today. We've got two. The first one is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1 to 17. So the whole chapter. Zechariah chapter 9. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest, rest on Damascus. For, all, for the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a, a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth, those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your sons Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. And the second reading is from Matthew uh, chapter 21 verse 1 to 10. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Thanks very much, Izzy. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. Jacko is how I go by. I'm lead pastor here at City Light Church North Adelaide. It's nice to see you. I've been away for a week. Um, It's been nice. It's nice to be back among you. Um, Do keep Zechariah or flick back to Zechariah chapter 9 if you sort of moved on to Matthew, that'd be great. We're continuing our series, Books We Don't Read. Uh, We are up to number 11 of uh, the 12 prophets as we look at these minor prophets. Um, We've called it Books We Don't Read because they're often books we don't read um, of the Old Testament because they are sometimes hard to get your head around um, and we're just working our way through those as we approach um, Christmas. It's like a little extended Advent series. Um, before um, I get you to turn to the person next to you and, and talk about a question, I just wanted to um, just briefly bring you a couple of announcements uh, from me. Um, one is just to let you know that a few of us um, here at City Light Church North Adelaide attended a child safe training session yesterday down at Glenelg. Um, it's what we do for all of our paid staff and uh, ministry leaders, and particularly those involved with children, uh, we attend a safer ministry training where we learn a bit about the current legislation around safer ministry, um, child protection. Um, We do that because we want to make sure City Light Church North Adelaide is a really safe place for vulnerable people and especially children. Um, and we have that around the place that we, we're all into safeguarding, making sure we can make sure our space is as safe as possible for vulnerable people, including children. So I just wanted to let you know, um, a few of us went down and sort of from people for the first time, some people did a refresher in that particular space yesterday. Um, the second thing to say is that we are, if you've been around City Light Church North Adelaide for most of this year, as we move back into this building, one of the wonderful discoveries of moving back into this building was that we didn't have any gas supplied and we didn't have any heaters. Um, and so if you've been here through the winter, well done. Um, I'm glad you're still alive. Um, there were some pretty brisk mornings um, here in the church. We've been waiting almost all year to get a new hot water service and also gas supplied. We are very close. Um, I don't want to say next week because I feel like if I say that it'll never happen, but maybe next week um, we might have hot water so we can all have shower. No, no. Um, We can have hot water and we can maybe switch the heaters on because what is going on with the weather? It is November, late November, and we're all like huddled together around campfires. It's ridiculous. What's going on? Anyway, um, Enough of that. I want you to turn to the person next to you, um, get in quickly on this one. I want you to ask the person next to you, do you know what a male donkey is called? Do you know what a female donkey is called? 
And like I say, that may or may not have anything to do with what we're talking about today. What do you call a male donkey? What do you call a female donkey? Turn to the person next to you. We'll open the God's word in just a moment. All right, let's come back together. Um, I don't know why you're talking so much. You either know it or you don't, right? So anyway, um, I may or may not reveal the answer as we go through. But anyway, um, let's pray together. Father, you are extraordinarily good, phenomenally beautiful, and as we've sung already this morning, you are holy. And we praise you that in your goodness, beauty, and holiness, you've not stayed silent, you've spoken to us in many ways and through many means, but definitively you've spoken to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. The Word made flesh. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, refresh us in Jesus this morning. Father, I pray that by your Spirit and through your Word, we would see Jesus, we would hear Jesus. And Father, we would love Jesus and find afresh our hope in him. Lord, for those who... Don't yet know the Lord Jesus in the hope that he's found in him. I pray that by your spirit, you'd work in that way. And Father, for those of us here today who follow the Lord Jesus, renew us, refresh us, remind us of the great hope that we have in him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it all started back in 2016 when the hope of a new church in Adelaide was born. Uh, That hope of a new church in Adelaide took shape uh, in Glenelg, a seaside suburb of our city, with a small bunch of zealous disciples. And in October 2017, that hope became a little more certain when that little group of zealous disciples from Glenelg emerged and landed on a fairly underused quirkily designed Presbyterian church building on Archer Street in North Adelaide. And the church started to meet. And by early 2018, that healthy group of young people were regularly gathering with this glorious hope of seeing every tribe and nation and tongue, all these people gathering around a secondhand coffee machine in the porch All these people gathering around the coffee machine crying, we want to get into the gathering place and worship the Lord. And until then, we live in hope. The church planting project in North Adelaide started with hope, has been driven by hope, and even now is still sustained by hope. A confidence that in some point in time, things are just going to get better and better. There have been some rocky moments over the past six years of City Light Church North Adelaide, and there may be some more to come, but we've never lost hope. For me, the last four years being around here, and for many, the last six years have been driven along by a rich, multi-layered, unfolding hope. Now, I'm telling us all this this morning because God's people back in Jerusalem, after the exile, they'd lost hope. Hope. Their hopes had been dashed. They'd come back from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. It seemed like the world was at their feet, but what happened? 
nothing. And as a result, God's people had lost their mojo. And God gives this message in the book of Zechariah, literally this burden, this oracle to his prophet for one reason and one reason only, to reawaken their hope. And perhaps strangely, that's the message that we need to hear. Because I don't know if you've noticed, right, but hope, looking forward to something better with confidence, I think is seriously out of fashion. Many of you know I was um, traveling overseas, went to Fiji with my family, I went to this place called Manor Island in the middle of the South Pacific, it was really lovely, and I was rifling through some, um, some magazines and stuff at the resort, and I came across an article in a magazine, an environmental magazine called Orion, by an, and the article was by a guy named Michael Derek Jansen. He's like the poet philosopher of the environmental movement. And he writes about hope. Listen to what he says about hope. A quote, frankly, I don't have much hope, but I think that's a good thing. Hope is what keeps us chained to the system, the conglomerate of people and ideas and ideals that's causing the destruction of the earth. To start, there is the false hope that suddenly, somehow, the system may inexplicably change or technology will save us or the great mother or beings from Alpha Centauri or Jesus Christ or even Santa Claus. All of these false hopes lead to inaction or at least an ineffectiveness. One reason my mother stayed, he says, with my abusive father was that there were no battered women's shelters in the 50s and 60s, but another was her false hope that he would change. False hopes, he says, blind us to the unlivable situations and real possibilities. But it's not just false hopes that do that, but hope itself, he says. Hope, we are told, is our beacon in the dark. It's our light at the end of a long, dark tunnel. It's the beam of light that makes its way into our prison cells. It's our reason for persevering, our protection against despair, which must be avoided at all costs. How can we continue, people say, if we have no hope? But the more I understand hope, the more I realize it's a curse of being. Hope leads us away from the present, away from who we are right now, towards an imaginary future state. He concludes, when we stop hoping for external assistance, when we stop hoping that the awful situation we're in will somehow resolve itself, when we stop hoping that the situation will somehow not get worse, then we're free, truly free, to honestly start working to resolve it. When hope dies, he says, action begins. His basic argument is that rather than helping and energizing and sustaining us, hope actually hinders and restricts. Hope leads us to look for easy solutions that come from outside to trust others rather than taking responsibility for our own destiny. He says hope is thoroughly a bad thing. We've got to save ourselves, he says. But Zachariah's perspective could hardly be more different, right? Because Zachariah knows that the only, there's only one thing that can move and motivate a deeply discouraged people, a people out of their depths, and it's not simply taking responsibility for their environment. The one thing that can move and motivate a discouraged people is hope. We're looking at the book of Zechariah. We're just going to zoom in on one particular chapter this morning, chapter 9. And chapter 9 of the book of Zechariah falls into three points. 
four, three points. And points God's people to hope in three different ways. So let's get going. I hope you have Zechariah chapter 9 open in front of you. The first eight verses of the book of Zechariah tell us to hope in the all-seeing judge. Have a look at verse 1. The, the, the word word there in some of our translations or oracle in some other translations is a little bit unusual. It actually means burden. It's used in the latter part of the Old Testament where um, the words of one prophecy build on the words of another prophet that have gone before. Um, so here's what Zechariah says, verse 1. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all the people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful, very wise. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she'll be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. Ekron too. Gaza, Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines." Now, verse 1, right, all the nations look to Yahweh, look to the Lord, and at the end, verse 8, Yahweh watches over all the nations, sees all the nations. The question I want to know is, what's the significance of all the place names in between verses 1 and verse 8? Hadrach, Hamath, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon. They're not exactly kind of famous Old Testament places, right? Unless you know, of course, 2 Samuel 8, where all these cities are listed around the time of King David. It's that simple observation that unlocks verses 1 through 8. So the oracle is deliberately old school. It describes how God, the judge, acts against Israel's traditional enemies. The cities of Samaria, they face the music. The settlements around the Philistines, even though by Zechariah's time, 520 BC, the Philistines were basically a spent force. What's the point? The point he's making is that there's never any escaping from God. It may take a while, but one day the people of every nation will bow before this God, this king, this judge. Everyone will be judged and will be judged fairly. There'll be no complaints about some people getting an easier deal than others. God will judge justly. Judgment day will come. Zechariah makes it clear that on that day, no one can escape. Not Israel's ancient enemies, not Israel's current enemies, nor their adversaries to come. No one will slip through the cracks when God shows up in judgment. All past wrongs, deceit, brutality, political intrigue will be accounted for. Yahweh the judge who sees everything will show up and act. But what's amazing in this particular opening verses is that even as judgment is rolled out, look what happens in verse 7. The amazing salvation of God to unlikely pagans. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden fruit from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites, like Jerusalemites. I remember a few years ago, I was in India uh, teaching the Bible. I was there for a couple of weeks. And um, 
when I wasn't doing some lectures, when I wasn't doing some bits and pieces, I, I found myself in the town square, in the big town square in Vijayawada in India, and I came across a group of Sikh believers, um, Sikh people. Um, started sharing the gospel with them. It was going pretty well most of the time, but it didn't end very well. Um, my, lasting, my, my lasting picture was of two Sikh men yelling at me across the square, why should we listen to you? You've got the graves of animals in your teeth. That's how the conversation ended. I just slinked off and had some lunch. But verse 7, if you have a look, it's not a vindication of radical vegetarianism. It's actually a description of how God will bring to himself people who are spectacular lawbreakers. Even bloodthirsty Philistines who have all kinds of prohibited cooked meats in their lunch boxes and between their teeth will be saved. Even Philistines will be part of the people of God. The judge of all the earth will come and he will save and then he will secure all his people, verse 8. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Yahweh, the God, the all-seeing judge, has remembered his covenant and has acted both in salvation and judgment. It's really important. God will act in salvation, rescuing even the most unlikely people. I don't know about you, but I reckon the Philistines are the most unlikely people in the Old Testament to be saved. If you know your Bible, God doesn't have a very good word to say them about, about them ever, apart from here. But I wonder... If you had to decide today, in your humble opinion, I wonder who you think would be the most unlikely people on the planet to become Christians. You're the group you think furthest from the gospel. Turn to the person next to you, put your money where your mouth is. Who would you say are the most unlikely people to turn to Christ today? The people furthest from the gospel. Turn to the person next to you. I'll give you a 14.7 seconds. Go. Who do you think? Five, four, three, two, one. All right. I won't ask you to yell them out. Um, I'm, I think for me, um, an easy pick, at least over the last few years, would be um, sort of IS, fighters, soldiers, members of Boko Haram, those kind of people, they seem to me to be a pretty long way from Christ. Because, um, oh, by the way, I meant to mention before, um, I'm really look, I was really looking forward to the young adults night, um, but I realised that I made a comment publicly a little while ago that um, I don't really like board games, um, and if you invited me to a party that had board games, I pretty much know that you don't want me to be there. Um, so I'm just thinking the young adults crew have just pizza and board games. I love pizza. I just don't like board games. And I know that makes me much, like, almost not a Christian, right? Because all Christians love board games. I don't like them. Again, if you don't want me to come to something, just put on board games. No. Um, because I'm a little bit older, um, for me, like, if, if I was to answer this question, like, you know, many years ago, I would actually have said Iranian people 
were the people that I think were the furthest from the gospel, right? Um, back in the day, um, the Shah had been overthrown. About 30 years ago, the Shah had been overthrown. The Ayatollah Khomeini, there he is, the third person along, um, perhaps the biggest madman on the planet at the time. He was in charge. Sharia law had been introduced. And everyone in Iran, but also around the world, was kind of afraid of him. And at the time, there were basically no Iranian Christians in Iran. But today, there are over 500,000 Iranian Christians. There are good reports that mullahs are turning to Christ. There are reports that members of the Iranian government have turned to Christ. And I don't know, there are many people, even in our city, in Adelaide, Persian people, Iranian people, whom God has, by his spirit, opened their eyes to see, hear, and love Jesus. You know, Philistines, Iranians, but what about our city? Who do you think are the most unlikely people in Adelaide to come to faith in Christ right now? To be honest, I think it's the majority group sitting in the building right now. White Anglos. White English speakers are the hardest people to reach. I think we're the group who are most resistant to the gospel people who seem most close to the fact that Jesus Christ died, lived, and lived, died, and rose again, and rules the universe with power and authority. But it's Anglos, right, who are most open in their rebellion against Christ. I suspect this is the people group we're finding most hard to reach right now. So what should we do? Pack up all the English-speaking Anglo kind of churches in our city and go home, accept the fact that we're a marginal minority group in Australia, ineffectual in reaching even our own people. No. Because our hope is in God, the all-seeing judge who will act in salvation, and we must do it because he'll act in judgment. Our God is the God of salvation and judgment, and this is the first ground of our hope. Our hope is in this all-seeing God who will judge the living and the dead. I know the idea of judgment is not very sexy at the moment and probably is one of the first things we jettison as Christians when we're speaking about the gospel. But actually the coming judgment of God where he will come to make all things right is actually a wonderful thing. A thing that many of our brothers and sisters around the world long for. In verses 9 and 10, as we switch and pivot to our second point, Zechariah switches scenes abruptly to tell us, of, to, tell us to hope in the suffering king. Hope in the suffering king, verses 10, 9 to 11. It's a striking figure who is riding on a donkey of all things. Suddenly the scene shifts from cosmic judgment to Palm Sunday as God urges his people to rejoice because of this strange figure who is both afflicted, suffering, but saved. Now, verses 9 and 10, he, he rides on a particular kind of donkey. Some translations mask this, the ESV a bit slightly. Um, it's a thoroughbred donkey. Now, sometimes preaching at North Adelaide expands my knowledge in completely unexpected ways, and here is one of them. Did you know that a male donkey is called a jackass? And a female donkey is called a jenny? There you go. I mean, if you don't learn anything else today at church, right? Jackass and Jenny. 
Now, I'm 43 years old, I've been to primary school, I've done secondary school, I've got a few degrees at uni, I've read a bit, I've travelled overseas, I enjoy talking to people, I've visited zoos, I've even visited farms, but I never knew the name of male and female donkeys until this week. Is it just me? Am I alone? No. And whilst you may not think that knowing a jackass from a Jenny is an important theological thing to know, or well, should that have slipped through your grasp, it's a gross oversight. You are wrong. Because after, some, after researching some key Old Testament donkey texts, I can tell you that Zechariah is alluding to two earlier Old Testament passages. The first is 2 Samuel 16, when David rides a donkey. When David, here it is on the screen, when David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Zeba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, and 100 cakes of figs in a skin of wine. The king asked Zeba, why have you brought these? Goes on. Zeba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. So David gets these donkeys to ride on. What happens next is really interesting, because when he gets on the donkeys and when he rides them, not your like, usual royal mode of transport, right? He's cursed by Shimei, the son of Gera. When David... The Messiah, the king, rides a donkey, he gets cursed, afflicted, opposed, he suffers. The second key passage is Genesis chapter 49. It's in the blessing of Jacob. And this is what he says. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And that is the promise that from the seed of Abraham will come a rescuer. Until he whom it belongs to shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Goes on, I think. Yeah, he will tether, here we go, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his jackass's son of a jenny to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. What's the Messiah from Judah's chosen mode of transport? He comes from a jackass born of a jenny. Only place in the Old Testament that you'll find this phrase used. He rides on a purebred donkey. You see, Zechariah announces that the coming one, who we meet in the early pages of his prophecy, who will sort everything out, is the Davidic Messiah who comes to suffer, riding on the trademark beast of a Messiah who will be afflicted, the Judah beast. And when this suffering Messiah does his work, we read Zechariah 9.10, he will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. When he comes, there'll be no more foolish military expansion programs. He'll abandon Solomon's chariot strategy from Egypt. He'll subdue all military strength and he'll do it by speaking peace as the king who suffers. Zechariah says our hope is in the all-seeing God of salvation and judgment and our hope is in the suffering king. 
I hope you can see the tension in this passage. There's nothing new here in the Old Testament. On the one hand, there is staggering power and authority. The king speaks and brings peace. Also, on the other hand, this king's power is expressed in the context of suffering, opposition, affliction, brokenness, and sacrifice, all on the back of a thoroughbred donkey. And that's why we had Matthew chapter 21 read. It's the wrong time of the year, right? For Palm Sunday. But God's long-promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a thoroughbred donkey on his way to suffer, to be opposed, and yet to lay his life down for the sins of the world and bring peace. It's actually in this space of power and weakness, in this tension that we find our hope because we walk as God's people in weakness, but we do so in the knowledge that we belong to the one in whom all weakness and strength are perfectly combined. The one to whom belongs all authority, all power, glory and might. We belong to the king who lived, served, died and rose again. But we also belong to the one who died and rose again to rule from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. There's our hope in this suffering king. And Paul puts these ideas together beautifully. 2 Corinthians 10 where he says... I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, Corinthians, but bold toward you when away. I beg that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your disobedience is complete. You see, our hope is in this suffering king. It's a real hope, a gentle hope, a winsome hope, but a strong hope that carries with it all the power and authority of the risen Lord Jesus. And then the rest of our passage, verses 11 through 17, the focus shifts from intertextual donkeys carrying suffering kings to a moving expression of the hope we have in a beautiful saviour. Verses 11 through 17. I don't think we use the word saviour much these days. Instinctively, I try to avoid it. I sort of substitute saviour. I use the word rescuer instead. But you know what? There's something really rich and full about the language of Jesus, our saviour. So I'm just going to use the S word today. Because look at what this saviour does. Look at how this rescue plays out. It's not simply a rescue that plucks us out of danger and drops us on a jetty. See verse 11? As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. That language of waterless pit, possibly an allusion to when Joseph was thrown into a pit by his dodgy brothers, may also be an allusion to Jeremiah who was locked in a waterless pit by those who didn't want him to speak anymore. But more likely, it's probably an allusion to Psalms 40 and 62 where David describes opposition as like being thrown into the bottom of a pit. But either way, God says through covenantal bloodshed, through sacrifice that makes the covenant work, he'll rescue his people. 
In that day, he says, exile will be brought to a proper end. Those who were formerly prisoners, who were marked out by their hope, are freed and receive a double blessing. Hope. You know that I'm into top fives, top five smells, top five beaches, um, top five kids' party foods. It's a new one. Um, we also got a top five movies of all time, and into my top five movies of all time has got to be Shawshank Redemption. Anyone else with me? Shawshank Redemption? Like one other. There you go. Anyway, um, Shawshank Redemption's been out since 1994, so if you haven't actually seen it, you really should, and therefore I don't care if I give away spoilers, right? Um, Andy Dufresne there on the left, um, he's sentenced to life in prison uh, for the murder of his wife and her lover, um, which, like everyone else in Shawshank Prison, he believes that he never did it. Um, he's there, you know, wrongly. Um, Andy stands out in prison uh, because he conforms exactly to the prison system. He's like a model inmate. But by the end of the movie, it turns out that all 19 years that he's been in prison, he's been digging a tunnel through the wall of his cell with this tiny little kind of geology, kind of jewel pick thing, hammer. Anyway, um, digs the tunnel, he escapes. And then he's reunited um, with his former cellmate, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, who surprisingly isn't playing God in this particular film. But anyway, um, Morgan Freeman, he, and he says to, to, uh, to Red, remember Red, it's coming up on the screen, I think, the quote, remember Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. It's hope that keeps us going. Zechariah says it's hope that will enable his peers to negotiate the long wait of the post-exilic period as they wait for the Lord to come and intervene, for the king to show up, and he will intervene. God's people will get to return to their stronghold in Jerusalem. God will return to them a double blessing that they could not even imagine how wonderful it is. Rather than being the whipping boy of the ancient Near East, a day is coming when the people of God will be themselves the instrument of judgment. Verse 13, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son's Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Um, don't know if you noticed the reference there to Greece. It's a bit weird, it's a bit different. Sometimes it's said that the reference to Greece here shows that Zechariah is written much later than the 520 BC date that we have, even though that comes from within the book itself. But there's no need to doubt the reference. The Greeks at this time were starting to flex their muscles. 498 BC, they attacked and burned the city of Sardis. And eight years later, in 490 BC, they famously defeated the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, which of course is 42.2 kilometers from Athens. I mean, you're learning lots today, right? Jackass, Jenny, and then the Battle of Marathon happened, and it's 42.2 kilometers from Athens. There you go. Next time you run your marathon, you know, you can, anyway. Greeks are also alluded to in the book of Joel. Anyway, it's, like, it's very clear what's going on. God is bringing peace to his people through this war. Verse 14, then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet, only time in the Bible where God blows a trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. 
They'll be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. There's either lots of wine here because God has just won a great battle and the people are celebrating his victory, or there's lots of blood because they've just made a huge victory sacrifice. Either way, it's a big win. A day of victory is coming. Which brings us to the stunning climax of this chapter. Verse 16. The Lord their God will save his people on that day. As a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. God will save his people and his people will shine like jewels. It's prized possession. On that day, the men will be grain-fed and the women will sip on lightly fermented low-alcohol wine. But most importantly, we will be treasured and we'll be content. I'm not sure I can think of a more attractive summary of what the future holds for God's people than this. We'll be treasured and content. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I love to be loved. I love to be loved. I don't think there's anything that moves me quite so much as when you have those moments in life where another human being looks at you and without saying a word, you know that despite all your flaws and foibles and failures and inconsistencies and hypocrisy, you just know that when you look into their eye, you know that you are loved and valued and treasured. I think we've all got a pretty good radar on sort of insincerity. But we know when it's the real deal, right? Can't pretend it. There is something staggeringly precious when a valued friend, spouse, family member looks at us and we just know that we're loved. And incredibly, this is how God treats us. This is how God looks at us. This is one of those moments, even though God is speaking through his prophet to a small group of God's people two and a half thousand years ago, stuck in the western corner of the Persian Empire. It's one of these moments when even though he's speaking to them, he's also speaking to us. Because this is always how God treats his people. When God saves us, he finds us, he forgives us, he frees us, he holds us, and he treasures us like the sparkling jewels in a crown. We're to pick up the words of John in Revelation chapter 21, describing us, his people, he says this, verse two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then one of the angels says, I'll show you the bride. I'll show you the people of God. This is the wife of the land. This is what she looks like. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, sparkling jewels. Back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter two, there were jewels everywhere. 
Now God's people are the jewels, the treasured possession of God. We are treasured in this new creation, in the hope that we have when God comes back and takes us to be with him forever. We are treasured, but we will also be utterly and uninterruptedly content. Just think about that for the moment. You know, contentment that can't be interrupted. Just think about that. Um, I've been on this short holiday over to Fiji uh, with Adele and the kids one afternoon. Um, I was on my own. I was sitting in the sun. Um, I was down by the beach. I was on my own. Water lapping at my feet. I was sipping on a mocktail. I was on this banana lounge in my t-shirt, no shoes on, my swimmers, it was great. Adele and the kids, they'd had a really great day, they were back in the house. There was a little bit of sand between my toes, I know some people don't like sand between my toes, I love it. I was just like, yes, it was warm, light breeze. I look around, there was nothing to do. I slumped on this lounge and before I could get a sigh out, Dad, Dad, I wanna go snorkeling, come on. I know that it's a privilege to be a father, but at that moment, I wasn't feeling it. Problem with our contentment in this age is it's always interrupted. Someone, something always intrudes. Some things are worthy things, sometimes annoying things. But when, even when you're at your most relaxed, right, you know there is a time coming when you're going to have to get back up and go back to work. Or when you're working and things are going smoothly, you know that something's coming, which is going to stuff it up. But a day is coming when all interruptions to our contentment will be taken away. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. My translation, no interruptions. For the old order of things has passed away. And we'll be satisfied. Not with grain or not with lightly fermented low alcohol wine but with the rich banquet of knowing God himself and enjoying him fully and forever. It's no wonder Zechariah cries out for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. This is the salvation of our God. The book of Zechariah, this particular chapter can be a bit tricky. The names and images are a little bit hard to get our heads around. But there's no doubting where Zechariah goes. He goes to show us the greatness, the goodness, and the beauty of God. And this extraordinary hope. Hope may not be the in thing right now, but it's absolutely critically important. Not least because the Bible presents us with this wonderful multi-layered hope designed to help God's people back in Zechariah's day and to help us as God's people today Keep on keeping on. Of all the John Piper books that I've read, the one I've found most helpful and the one that I love the most is actually probably the one that's least well known. It's called this, Future Grace. Basically, Future Grace is John Piper's way of speaking about hope. Here's what he says, and with this, we're finished. The reason Future Grace is so important well, hope is so important, is that everything in the Christian life depends on it. You can't be a Christian without future grace. At every point on the way, true saints sing, which is grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. 
Every backward glance sparks gratitude for past grace. Every look forward casts the soul onto faith in future grace. No one can become, no one became a Christian without past grace, and no one can be a Christian moment to moment without future grace. Our standing as Christians is as secure as God's supply of future grace. Hope really matters because it's hope that keeps us going. Because it's hope that constantly refocuses us on God himself, who is our joy and our ultimate crown. It's any wonder the Bible says, blessed are they whose hope is in the Lord. Should we pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your ancient word in the book of Zechariah, written to your people thousands of years ago to reawaken in them a hope in you. Father, thank you that your word is still active and alive and speaks to us today. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to hear you speak to us through your word, to refresh us, to refocus us on, refocus us on the hope we have in you. Thank you for your grace. Father, help us to be people who moment to moment depend on your grace and from moment to moment look to you as our great hope. And Father, we pray this morning for perhaps all those people groups we thought about who we feel are very far from you. Thank you, Father, for the reminder of how you, in your grace, rescued some Philistines. And, Father, we pray that by your grace, you'd rescue men, women, from these people groups who we feel are very far from you. And, Father, by your Spirit, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to not lose hope. But with your help, hold out the hope of the good news of Jesus to all those around us. And indeed we cry, blessed are they whose hope is in the Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.